Grace to all of you and peace from God, our Creator, and from our Lord, and from our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Holy and most gracious God, help us to hear your words, the same words you gave to Lazarus. Unbind them and let them go. Most holy God, there are things that bind us, that keep us from living the life that you intended for us. Unbind them, O Lord, and set us free, free from our pain and our sorrow, our grief and our guilt, our sins and our selfishness. Set us free, O Lord, and may it begin this day as we open our hearts to your word and receive your very presence in the bread and the wine of communion. In your holy name we pray. Amen. We were a very small group of people from Holy Spirit Lutheran Church going on our first trip to the Holy Land. We were such a small group, in fact, that the tour company merged us with two other churches. We didn't know who they were going to be. We found out. First church was from Boston. St. Alfonso Catholic Church. The other church was from Texas. First Baptist Church of Laredo. I thought to myself, well, this is going to be an interesting trip. <laughs> and it was wonderful. We all got along so famously that you wouldn't expect from the initial reading of our differences that we'd get along so well, but we did. The very end of the trip, we're making our way from the Dead Sea which, by the way, you may already know, is the lowest point on earth. Up, up, up towards Jerusalem. And as we drove, I looked over the landscape, which appeared to be more of a moonscape than a landscape. There were no trees, no shrubs, no grass, only rocks, sand, dirt, and dust. And it was hot. No buildings. No people. We're going up, up, up in the bus. Higher and higher, getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, although none of us had been to Jerusalem. The tour manager knew exactly where he was because he put on the sound system in the bus a song to introduce the city. The very song that Jackie Borson just sang for us, The Holy City. And he was so good at estimating where we were that just as we crested the hill... To look at Jerusalem for the very first time, we heard the soloist go, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And there was the city right in front of us. And all of us were tingly because it was such a holy moment. We could see in the distance the golden dome of the shrine of the rock reflecting the light back to us. We could see the limestone walls of the city also brilliantly white and a Jewish cemetery outside the walls of that city where the graves are above ground graves. They're tiny little mausoleums. Everyone gets their own little mausoleum made out of limestone, perfectly white. All this reflecting back to us in the bus. And then in the center of the old city, there is a tower that goes up high. It is a Christian church. It happens to be a Lutheran Christian church. Reformation Lutheran here before us. Listening to this music is a Muslim shrine, a Jewish cemetery, a Christian church. 
And from a distance, it looked perfect. It looked like everybody got along. It looked so holy. Whenever I hear our second lesson today from Revelation chapter 21 and 22 about John's vision of the holy city, I think of that moment in the bus where we saw Jerusalem for the first time and we all had that tingly feeling, this holy, awesome feeling of the way the world ought to be, Muslim, Christian, Jew, all together. John had that vision. He wrote it down for us. We read it today just a moment ago. His vision was of the holy city coming down out of heaven, descending down to earth. And it was perfect. It was filled with light. It was perfection itself. It was peaceful and holy. And it was big. It was 1,500 miles wide. That's here to Minneapolis, folks. 1,500 miles deep. 1,500 miles high. That's a big city. Yeah? What's John's point? It's not a literal story. It's a theological story meant to convey to us a theological message that God's love, God's grace, God's for forgiveness is huge, infinite. There's enough room in this city for everyone. And it says every tribe and nation we welcomed into the city. If you heard Jackie Borson's words that she sang a moment ago, all the gates are open never to be closed again. It is a theology of inclusiveness where God's love is so great it's almost irresistible. Typically when we read the book of Revelation we don't think of inclusive theology where everybody is welcomed in. Instead, we think of exclusive theology where people are separated one from another. I mean, in your own mind, I say Revelation, book of Revelation, immediately what comes to mind is the big book, people getting separated out into those who go up, those who go down. Those who are lost, those who are saved. Those who are in, those who are out. We get the image of Armageddon rapture. Maybe we start thinking of fire and brimstone sermons. Has anyone here heard a fire and brimstone sermon? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five. You know, that's not very many. We thought Pastor Katie and I might start doing them here so you get <laughs> a taste of what it was like. I just actually can't wait to do one so I'd start laughing halfway through it. I know I would. So Think of, there's a sermon that's famous in American history by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he describes a human being being held by a spider thread above a tormenting hell and God is just waiting to drop you into those fires. See, I can do it. <laughs> we think of the book series Left Behind, which is tremendously influenced by exclusive theology. You don't want to be left behind. Now, when we read the Bible, we can pick out examples of exclusive theology, good, bad, lost, saved, etc. 
But we can also pick out threads of theology which is inclusive and graceful and wide and big like that holy city. But we tend also always to lean into the exclusive theology rather than the inclusive theology. It has dominated Christianity and by extension it dominates our society because Christianity is the foundation upon which we, our society is based. And if our society begins with separation, if our theology emphasizes that, then it easily morphs into our culture and polarizes everything from our politics to how we treat people who might be different from ourselves. And it can become even worse. Soon, it can morph into things like not just lost, saved, but we are saved. They are not. We are good. They are bad. We are successful, but they're lazy. We are winners. They're losers. We're chosen. They're the enemy. You can see that thread of exclusive theology weaving its way to every area of our politics and life in general. I have always been uncomfortable with that theology, taught to me from elementary age onward. And as an elementary six or seven-year-old, I couldn't articulate why I was so uncomfortable with that. At that time, the big exclusive dividing line of who's lost and who's saved was between Roman Catholics and Lutherans. You certainly didn't want to date someone from the other religion because mom and dad, grandma and grandpa would say absolutely not because those people are, you know, okay. And I had friends who were Catholic in my class. And I thought, man, that just doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't seem Jesus-like. And never was I able to articulate my discomfort until I got to college and I took a professor who taught Bible and the parables of Jesus and he taught one parable which changed my life and changed my theology and has been part of my ministry here at this church ever since. He taught about the parable of the wheat and the chaff. He said, tell me the parable of the wheat and the chaff. You, many of you go to church. It wasn't I who raised my hand but someone else did. Well, the wheat are the good people that get gathered away by the farmer to go to the good place. And the chaff get gathered into another place and they are burned with unquenchable fire. Of course, the good people, the bad people. The saved people, the lost people. He let us tell the story. And then he just did this. And he looked at us. He caught each one of our eyes and he said, Is there not wheat and chaff always within you? Are you ever pure wheat? We said, No. And then he said, what if we saw this parable differently? 
that the burning of the chaff with unquenchable fire is a wonderful blessing where God comes and burns away the chaff of our lives, our insecurities and our fears and our anger and our greed and our jealousy and our racism and our dysfunction. Would that not be wonderful? It changed my life. It changed my theology. It made me understand Jesus much better. And also the thread of exclusive theology that makes its way through the Bible, but also the thread of inclusive theology that makes its way through the Bible and through the book of Revelation. And I thought about it, and I thought about how Christianity has been the foundation, philosophy, upon which we have built this American society. And I... I'm so sad that I believe that part of the political polarization that we experience in our world today is partly due to that foundation of lost, saved, in, out, us, them, theology that starts in the Christian churches. And what would it be like if it changed to a more inclusive foundation upon which we and our society would rest? That God's holy city is a society whose chaff has been burned away. That's what the holy city is. It's a society whose greed and racism and fear and anger and competition is all burned away, leaving a society of justice and equality and kindness and compassion. The very words of the Apostle Paul when he writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor field, free, male nor female. He is describing that holy city, that way to be together. We would translate it today as there is neither citizen nor refugee, Republican nor Democrat, black nor white. We are all together. It is one world, one society, one bus that we're riding on. We might as well get along as we make our way through the desert to the holy city. Amen.